This is kind of an odd time in fish's history. I came into Woco with me being the guy with the story. It was sometimes uh, appropriate for Soundgarden, sometimes not. 20 years writing about music. Dozens of cassettes in a drawer. Get ready for conversations that time nearly forgot. Dave's old interview tapes. Hi, I'm Indianapolis Star reporter Dave Lindquist, and welcome to Dave's Old Interview Tapes, a podcast that digs up musical conversations from an era when corn was a massive band and high fructose corn syrup was a minor problem. Today's episode revisits three interviews with John Mellencamp, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer who grew up in Seymour, Indiana, and established a respected career from his home base near Bloomington. We'll hear John talk about his Good Samaritan pop-up shows of 2000. I was on a step. There was no stage. I was standing on some steps, and there were cops all around me and people taking pictures. Hear his philosophy on performing early career hits. There's just so in ancient history. Uh, you know, that's like, that's like me saying to you, hey, Dave, how about uh, producing your uh, freshman <laughs> And learn about Brown County magic. You know, that's why all those painters were out there. You know, this, you know, when I first built that studio out there, I thought, all oh, that's a bunch of bullshit. But as time goes on, you know, <laughs> it's true. Our in-studio guest for this episode of Dave's Old Interview Tapes is Jim Reiser, the singer-songwriter who's found an impressive second act after being a major label recording artist in the 1990s. Jim is the director of the Chronic Pain and Chemical Dependence Programs at IU Health, and he also writes music you may have heard in hunting videos. Jim, how are you? I'm doing wonderfully, man. This is so exciting for me to be here today. Well, this is a landmark episode. You know, I've written about music in Indiana since 1998, and I have a lot of tape with John Mellencamp, and we're going to dig into it today. Awesome. Where should we start when it comes to Jim Reiser and John Mellencamp? Well, it's, it goes way back to the demo days. Um, one of our, uh, my drummer from a band called Trilogy was real close to one of John's attorneys. And over time, um, that led to me leaving that band because we could never get out of the rush vibe. I mean, we were rush, rush, <laughs> rush, rush, rush. Power we, trio. Yeah, power trio. I mean, and it was a killer band. I mean, I, I go back and listen to demo tapes from when I was 16, 17 years old, and it's like, we really were good. It eventually led to Richard Mellencamp, who helped us get some demos at TRC, yep, at TRC Studios. As time went by, I went as a solo artist and um, stayed uh, real close with Richard, uh, who ended up being uh, a co-manager with Champion Entertainment uh, for my Arista career. Nice. You once told me a story about going to an Arista cocktail party with Clive Davis and was it uh, Sarah McLaughlin? Yeah, with Sarah. Yeah, we were we were both artists on the label at the time, and uh, Clive said to Sarah, he says, oh, "Could you get me another water, Miss?" You know, in his oh, no. Clive voice. Yeah, and <laughs> she says, um, "I think I can. I don't know where it's at." And he kind of looked at her. She goes, "I'm Sarah McLaughlin. I'm one of your artists." Wow. <laughs> and it was kind of interesting because I was sort of Clive's guy at that moment because you know. We had same old look was on the uh, getting ready to be released, and so there was a lot of push behind that. And Sarah had already had a record out that was marginal; she hadn't had that big hit record. And I just remember telling her, "I said, don't worry, someday I'll be uh -huh. shoveling next to a, you know, <laughs> the red line in, in Broad Ripple, and you'll be a big major rock star." And of course, she ended up becoming just unbelievably yeah. famous. And uh, uh, what a wonderful woman she she was and is. That's a good story. Yeah. In recent years, John has talked a little more forthrightly about his very earliest days, and he was born with a very serious medical condition, and this is something that was a bond between the two of you? Well, it was kind of interesting, you know, I think it was a bond between Richard and I that it was really unspoken because John never ever talked about having spina bifida, and unfortunately for, for me, it resulted in you know, 50-some surgeries, uh, for John, it only resulted in one. And right. so John didn't even know he had a problem until he was 12 years old. So I, I'll be totally straight up. I was a little bit miffed when, you know, John was getting this attention for having spina bifida. And I'm like, dude, you didn't go through nothing. Yeah. And then he and I talked about this. And, it was, and then we kind of realized, wow, first of all, he didn't go through nothing. So when he'd always say, 
you know, Jimmy, I'm, I'm the luckiest man alive in, in his John voice. Sure, sure. You know, he would always say that for me, obviously it was just a way of life. So I really honestly don't look back and go, wow, poor me. It was just, I was used to having surgeries. It was not mm. anything that I wasn't used to. But I did remember thinking, John, you had no idea what could have happened for it. And that's what ended up bonding us. Okay. And so when he went back and saw that surgeon again and what could have been, and then come to find out that surgeon helped train the surgeon that did my surgery. Oh, how about that? I get goosebumps thinking about that because to think about how we came together then right. and how we came together as musicians and then were able to both really appreciate each other's parts was pretty amazing to me. As a listener of John's music, I grew up in central Illinois and I've talked on the podcast multiple times actually about being a member of Future Farmers of America in the mid 80s when Scarecrow comes out and I'm like, hey, this guy John Mellencamp not only wrote an album about farming and the part of the country where we live but look how cool he looks in that ffa jacket <laughs> um that was an important uh, thing to me i don't have the experience of growing up in indiana and seeing the rise of john mellencamp uh, what was that like we well, you know I, it first of all i didn't know you were an ffa guy because you know as i've gotten older i've really gotten into some of the aspects of i have a tractor now and i'm so pumped about nice. that so well if i should i'll just pause and say that i won the 1986 illinois state livestock livestock judging title oh my gosh <laughs> now see look at this i love the fact that all these years can go by and we still learn stuff about each other yes so, you know, the rise of John Mellencamp, I remember when we were first moving to Indiana from Jamestown, New York. My dad worked at Cummins, and so Cummins was Indiana and Jamestown. And my dad said, there's a, there's a rock star there, you know, and John had been coming up. Uh -huh. And we actually saw him at the Crump Theater. Oh, wow. Um, where, when he really was terrible. And he would be the first one to tell you that, <laughs> not me. Um, you know, and but I, I, I had just gotten interested in music. I just picked up the guitar and, and thought, this is what I want to do. And, you know, to kind of see this kind of behind the scenes as we're going through high school, junior high school and high school, and then after graduating and then with Trilogy um, and then watching this guy sell out Market Square Arena five days in a row and all these other things and, you know, just vicariously living that this could be me you know the thing that was cool about john was that um you it, 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 he was touchable he was tangible uh -huh. and wow we could do this too right, right. and and so and but he was also untouchable he he definitely looked like and played the rock star like you know when we would go to belmont um i i worked with ron volbrecht um who who built guitars for both john and for me sure and sometimes we would go over and ron would have to set up some guitars and when we would get there you know john would be with his glasses his sunglasses on and you know cool and and collected and you know he looked every bit the rock star that he was and sure. so but you know then i'd shake his hand and, and he'd be who are you you know <laughs> and i'd introduce i'm your dad's friend and i'm trying to play music too and you know oh, okay you know and, and he was he was always kind to me you know right. but he was also that guy that wow I, I shook john mellencamp's hand but it was really neat to watch that and then to watch even after you know the peak of all of that and you know to experience um, being able to play with him while I was in school and play on some of his records and be his designated guitar player, which is loosely said because um, he went through several different guitar players for a time period. And I'm not that good. I'm good. Don't get me wrong, but he, I'm not like Andy York good or, um, you know, some of the other guitar players, Mike Wanchick for sure. I mean, right. but, but I was able to do a part and play some violin and do some singing and, um, it did two things for me. It helped get me through school, and it really boosted my self-esteem after losing the record deal. And um, you know, because I made the choice, it was either I'm either going to live or die, and um, uh, and and music's not going to be part of life for me. So I had to let that go. And and John was very very good to me during those times. All right, so I'm learning something here. Uh, the timeline of lead guitarists in the in the John Mellencamp uh, history. There's Larry Crane, of course. Right. Uh, David Grissom. Dave Grissom. 
and before Andy, you fit in there somewhere? I fit in there very briefly. Yes, yeah, yeah, okay. before Andy. Um, and um, and I'm sure John was scrambling like crazy because it was like I knew I wasn't going to be able to go on tour or do anything like that. So, uh, But I had a little bit of time in, in, in there doing some cool work, and it was really fun. Now, some of those songs never got released, but I still have uh, – well, they're dats. <laughs> they're right, never the right. tape, the dat yeah, tapes. Yeah. I still have those. So it's kind of fun to go back and, and, and listen to those cuts from time to time. Well, you know, Jim – Things can come out of the archives in the Mellencamp history. There's a great guitarist from Indiana named the Reverend Josh Payton. has a Brown County group called the Reverend Payton's Big Damn Band. Great, tour, great band. tour all over the world. And several years ago, uh, John Mellencamp invited uh, the Rev to come into Belmont Mall, the studio in Brown County, just for a session. The Rev talks about um, sitting knee-to-knee, kind of like you and I are, sitting knee-to-knee with John with a microphone, one microphone overhead, they cut a couple of songs, one being a cover of the Civil Rights Anthem, Eyes on the Prize. Oh, wow. The Rev told me about this a few years ago, but it was never released. Lo and behold, the current John Mellencamp record, Other People's Stuff, a covers album, the lead single is that version of the Rev and John uh, recording Eyes on the prize. Wow. I'm gonna, okay. So now I know what I'm going to do on my drive home after we get done talking today. Yeah, it's yeah. really really powerful. It's um, so cool. The Rev is just a slide uh, master. And I ate him with a this is the first time three interviews have contributed to Dave's old interview tapes episode. One of the interviews happened in December of 1999. Okay. Right before John was going to play December 31st. 1999, Y2K special blowout at the brand new Conseco Fieldhouse, now known as Banker's Life Fieldhouse. And this was a time where I thought, if he's ever going to mix up the set list, it's going to be this amazing end of the 20th century, technically not the end of the 20th century. I know it happened in 2001. (laughs) But this amazing Y2K, let's call it the big Y2K concert. And uh, I asked him about a couple of early gems in the John Cougar timeline. And I wondered if he might pull those out. Do you find people ask you about things like, uh, I need a lover and ain't even done with the night? All the time. Yeah. <laughs> All the time. This will be no, no time like the present of this show, though. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. Uh, those songs for me, they're just so ancient history. Uh-huh. You know, that's like, that's like me saying to you, hey, Dave, how about uh, producing your uh, freshman, <laughs> your freshman paper there when you wrote for the high school paper? It's interesting because if I think of it from my own perspective, you know, a lot of people say, do you ever get tired of playing same old look, right? And I had one hit song. John's had a gazillion hit songs. Right. And... Um, I don't perform anymore. I don't sing anymore. I completely, it's, it, I don't, I, I don't regret that part of my life, but, um, I recall a time John and I went out to get bread for the kids. Okay. Um, I don't know why I was over at the house. It could have been for, for whatever reasons, but we ended up going out and I was blown away by how many people were so rude to him. You know, they, oh. they were calling him Cougar. And then one guy, hey, man, you need to play Jack and Diane at your next concert. And, you know, John just kind of ignored him. And I'm like, well, no wonder people think you're an asshole. I mean, my God, I'd be an asshole 24-7 if I had to listen to that crap. But but he and I talked about that on the way back. He, I said, you know, what it, what is it about your old hits that you like and what do you dislike? He says, what I dislike is they lose their soul over time. Hmm. And I get that. I get that. Because if you're not in your song, it's apparent. And um, over time, yeah, they just they they they're they're like your kids, but they never grow up and they just stay where they are and you move on. And so that I, I and I'd never forgotten that because, you know, part of what drives me musically now is that I get to do any style I want, any time I want. Right. And so every song means something yeah. and it has something there that would never happen. If somebody were to say, which is what happens in the pop music industry, can you write 10 more songs like. I need a lover yeah. or can you write 10 more songs like hurt so good you just get jaded and and I see where John got jaded and the thing that I like about John is that he got jaded and he didn't hide it okay so there's a very pivotal single in John's career 
I remember I was in college at Eastern Illinois University, and I turned on MTV, and here is my guy, John Mellencamp, singing this song, Pop Singer. Yes. And I'm like, what an ingrate. Don't you understand? <laughs> there it is. And of course, you know, we used to, he, he even hated that song. We'd always sing uh, Bob Seger instead of Pop Singer. Okay. We so. would always say... Stop singing that song. Oh, that's great. That's great. But see, I think that's a reflection on our conversation. I mean, obviously, that conversation took place even after that song. But, um, you know, and I used to think that, too. God, you know, everybody, all these fans made you who you are. You should be grateful for that. And I know he was and is, but it's like, okay, let me move on, too. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that people forget. They, they forget that their artists grow up. If you listen to that song with a different set of ears, you get it. Yes. This is a man who wants to grow. He wants to be an artist. And he's hemmed in by this three-minute, make-me-a-video, slap-me-on-TV kind of rut that he got caught in for a while. And everybody did. Everybody did from that time period. I mean, I remember when same old look was out, you know, okay, you got to write much more like that. <laughs> Are you kidding me? What about rain came? What about this song? I mean, I mean, I, I remember having to do a, another person's song for, for my first record. And I, I, I was like, I didn't want to number one, because it was like, it's not the greatest song or when it was, and I didn't like the lyrics at all. And, uh, but it was a good song, uh, but God, it was hard to do because it was hard to make it my own, especially after hearing the original mm -hmm. demo, which was like a ballad. Um, but it was the only song that we, we cut at Belmont Mall. But I just remember thinking, wow, I, I, I want to do my stuff. I want to do stuff. And, and same old look is not representative of anything that I mm. do. It's interesting, the, the whole idea of one-hit wonder. And I see it quite commonly in today's era. It's much different than all we've been talking about so far. But... Say you are an artist who gets a radio hit. It's easy for that song to become an 18-month thing that they just throw on the radio all the time, and that's, that's all you're defined by, and you'll never get out of that, which when John Mellencamp really hit his stride, it was not because he had Hurt So Good or Jack and Diane. No. He had them both, yep. and they both came within like three months on the radio, and it was Katie bar the door. Yep. Yep. And, you know, to, to, to look back at his catalog, you can really see that struggle, at least in my opinion, where it's like, okay, I'm either going to fall into this boxed in stuff or I'm going to break out of it. And of yeah. course he broke out of it beautifully. John Mellencamp issued a self-titled album in 1998. And his next record was released in 2001. That next album was called Cutting Heads, when I talked to him at the end of 1999, this New Year's Eve show was going to be like show 85. That's a that's a big run. Oh, yeah. That's a lot of shows. You're pretty tired. And I asked him, like, well, what's next? You're going to hit the you're going to hit the album tour cycle right away again. And he gave me a really interesting answer, not in 1999 or 2000 or 2001. It foreshadowed what he did. Next, after Cutting Heads, where he kind of blew up the entire rock pop mode in his career, and he made a stripped-down blues record. He started working with T-Bone Burnett, but that didn't come until about 2005, uh, but this is what he told me in 1999. You know, I'm tired of making rock records now. Yeah. I want to make a different kind of record. You know, I want to make a record that so so that was about the time i went to cleveland to um to school get, no i went to get sober okay which is sobriety was before school <laughs> yeah thank god <laughs> sobriety was actually not before undergrad undergrad i i was at the peak of my addiction and um and then you know graduated top 10 out of 3,000 co-ass grads so here i was shooting demerol in class and and so my life was pretty miserable. So I, my last um, um, playing with John was on the John Mellencamp record. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I can see where he could say, I'm tired of making 
rock records. He had the best band in the world. He always used to say, I got the best rock and roll band in the world. And But you could tell he was into redefining himself because he remember when he re- immersed himself in the art for, for, for a period of time, painting. the painting and, and beautiful paintings. I mean, one of the things that I helped do when I was living in the apartment while I was at IU was go through all of the paintings. And he said, Oh, I hate that one. I hate that one. I hate that one. And they were all beautiful. And I'm like, can I have them? No, <laughs> but, but my point was is you know, the, we all redefine ourselves from time to time and you could tell John was certainly in that in that mode and I certainly was in that mode because it was either redefine or die but um, right after that right after just before all of that is when I split Uh, I was kind of surprised (laughs) actually it's funny that you're asking about this I forgot I even had this conversation with him Um, right after it's probably about three weeks into my my rehab I called John. I was driving back to Indiana to to finally get my dog a better home because he was living in that apartment. I called him and I said, "Oh my God, John, the walls come crumbling down. That's that's about addiction, isn't it?" So right at that moment, I was basically a nail, and so everything around me was a hammer. Right? You yep. know, I mean, it was just the way that it was. And he's like, "No, that's not what I wrote it about." <laughs> but but we had that conversation. It was really as as silly as it sounds. It was the first mature conversation he and I ever had. And I'll never forget him telling me, he says, you know, the thing you got to remember is no matter what with your new life that you're going to have to embark on is you always have to have that center. And if you don't have that center, you're, you're going to lose it. You have to have. And that was something that really made sense to me about why he never really left Bloomington, why he, you know, recorded in Indiana. And, but at the same time, you can, when you have a strong center, you can do anything. And, and that, was, that was sort of a message that I got from him. Okay. And I'll never forget that because uh, I'd forgotten about the conversation because I was so excited to call him up and say, you're one <laughs> of us too. You know, and of course, he's laughing at me you know, because he knew where I was. He knew what was going on with me. Um, but just, again, that connection there to help understand that you know, as long as you got what's here in, in, the, in the middle and you know where your middle is, mm-hmm. the rest will fall into place. And I had never had the middle because I, the drugs took it, took it all over. All right. Let's reset a little bit okay. with uh, some Jim Riser biography. When you talk about addiction, fill us in a little bit about that. Because I was born with what I was born with, I had a lot of surgeries. Um, I mean, I had my first surgery at nine days old, and, and I had my 55th surgery not long ago, probably about seven or eight years ago. And so all of these, most of these were spina bifida related. So I, I had been given painkillers um, off and on my whole life. I don't really remember them until I was about 17 years old. Mm. Um, and I remember one day um, I had horrible kidney issues. I was having surgery. Uh, the physician couldn't do the surgery right away. It was somewhat emergent, but not obviously not emergent because he had to wait a week. <clears throat> and I had to take Percocet. And, um, and I remember I didn't like how I felt on that. Well, about a year later, uh, I was recording and I had a headache and I didn't want to lose my creative feel. And so I took a couple of Percocet and it was like somebody snapped a finger and it was just like, baby, where have you been my entire hmm. life? It was the first time I'd ever felt complete, for lack of a better way of saying it. And so that touched off an 18-year addiction uh, to opioids that, that led me to, at my worst, probably 20 to 30 Percocet a day and shooting up as much Demerol as I could. Wow. And, you know, the, the sad part about it was is, you know, I, I lived – what became the opiate epidemic, the beginning of the opiate mm-hmm. epidemic. Um, and I, and I, you know, Oxycontin had just come out right about the time I got sober. And I think to these, I look back now and think, oh my God, had I fallen into the way they were treating pain for those, for those years when opiates really became liberated, because they weren't that liberated when I got sober. They were mm-hmm. on their way, mm-hmm. but they weren't quite that liberated. Um, I would be dead today. And so, you know, thank God I got help when I did, and it was actually John was the final straw for me. Um, we were out in his boat. Uh, he was water skiing. Elaine at the time uh, was water skiing. His wife at the time was water skiing as well. And I remember I was in horrible withdrawal and I had a pretty bad wound on my foot and I had to go get some more pain medication. And John, uh, when we got back, I was like, you know, Elaine, do you mind going to the pharmacy with me? It's kind of hard to walk. And John just said, riser, my old lady don't need to go with you to the pharmacy, you know? And I'm like, um, yeah, you're probably right. And he goes, you're just going to get your pills, drink a beer, and you'll be just fine, you f***ing junkie. Hmm. And I went nuts. 
I mean, I, I was so pissed at him. And I told him how I felt, and I walked out. Drove around for about five hours and said, you know what, I'm going to prove that son of a bitch wrong. I'm going to go to Cleveland and go to rehab, and I'll show him that I'm not as messed up as he thinks I am. And, of course, I lived there for four years. Um, I was more addicted than, uh, you know, it, was, it took a heroin addict to help me understand how bad I was. Wow. Uh, yeah, she, she looked at me. She goes, oh, my God, you're sicker than me. You think you don't have a problem, and you're having pure, wonderful, pharmaceutical-grade drugs that you're shooting up, and I'm having to deal with something that rode around a dealer's <laughs> before it got to me. And that turned everything around for me. And, and so, again, John was there at the worst yeah. of my addiction, and he was there for the beginning of my recovery and been there ever since. And, you know, our friendship is not real close. I mean, we're not viscerally close. But that's John anyway because, I mean, I've known his dad forever, and he and I would be – we're close but not close. You know what I'm saying? It's sure. not like, like, hey, buddy, let's go golfing. It's not that way. Um, it's, it's been cl- very intimately close at – at periods of time. And, and I, I'm totally fine with that. And, and I think that, you know, John being the last straw for my addiction and some of the first straws for my recovery, uh-huh. um, I think that's kind of what made me so excited to be able to come and talk a little bit about this because, you know, watching from the periphery and watching from the distance and seeing the, the timeline that we're, that we're looking at, it's really interesting to see the evolution of John as the public guy. Right. And the evolution of John as the as the guy is he's a guy who loves art. Yeah. He lo- he's an artist and, and 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 he will never be boxed in by anything and I think that's the thing that I admire most about him. I was not writing for the Indianapolis Star during the well it's a you could stretch it into any number of albums, but to have a run that included American Fool, Uh huh, Scarecrow, Lonesome Jubilee, those were big '80s times. Yes, and 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 not '80s ish either. That's the thing that I love. I mean, Lonesome Jubilee is timeless. Yeah, my favorite favorite John Mellencamp record ever. That's mine. So I wasn't here. I didn't cover that uh-huh. era of John Mellencamp. Uh, my era of covering John Mellencamp has been seeing a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer do so many interesting projects in this era of his career. And that's what I admire most about him, is that he doesn't stay stuck in Greatest Hits Package, I'm going out this summer, I'm playing the sheds. He is always striving to do something new, challenge himself. And I think in the most basic definition, that is an artist. Yeah. He's always got one foot out the door of whatever he's working on right now. <laughs> that would be my definition. If we want to talk about someone learning new tricks, uh, John Mellencamp told me in 1999 about working on a recording in Florida, in the Florida Keys, where for the first time ever, he was using this recording method called Pro Tools. We're not recording it on tape for one thing. We're using a computer to record it. Which, you know, I thought I'd never do. But, uh, man, these things are so convenient. We're getting so much work done. And I looked around and I said, why are we, how are we getting so much work done so quick? And just the, the non-rewind time. Yeah. You know, you rewind a tape probably a thousand times in a day. It takes about a minute to rewind it. Just, you know, that time saves. I mean, we're down in Florida and we got as much work done in two weeks that we usually take a month. Huh. Is, it, is it Pro Tools? Or... Yeah, it's the new Pro Tools with the board and the whole bit. You know, Pro Tools up to, you know, the last time I messed around Pro Tools, you had to use a mouse, and I hated it. Okay. But now they have a, a actual record. you know, they have a 16-channel recording board, and that's what we're using. And then you click, and, and then it provides 16 more channels. You click again, it provides 16 more channels. So, you know, you, you have, like, 56 tracks. Huh? You know, so, and always before, you know, we've been, work, been working on 24 track, and, and, you know, we always had to bounce stuff around, and I kind of made the decision that if the Beatles were making records today, they'd be making them on Pro Tools for sure. Like John, he, he's, he, he will be more adaptable to change than I ever would be, because <laughs> I resisted Pro Tools as long as I possibly could. And, um, and then, of course, not unlike John, once you got a hold of it, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is a whole new way to be creative and mm-hmm. to get the job done. Well, when you made uh, your record for Arista, 
were you in a room with that beautiful luxurious two-inch tape was that how it was done back then yeah yeah we did as a matter of fact uh, we were just finishing off using two-inch tape and the big thing was the 32 track mitsubishi digital okay it was still tape and so we uh, i didn't get into pro tools i mean like i said i got forced into pro tools i i remember going online and buying used tape on my 16 track studio <laughs> to do some of the songs for the hunting shows that i write for uh, the hunting public is the one i write for now and um i i just was like i just i can't i i don't want to buy an apple i don't want to it wasn't that it, and it was had nothing to do with apple i just didn't want to buy a mac i didn't want to i didn't want that i i, I needed tape and i needed the the, the soundboard and the tangibility of it and of course as john was talking about with the soundboard with pro tools that's sort of what convinced him right. and in in belmont is the same today it has the same you know the the everything you can touch because you know nothing is harder for me than to hop on an ipad on something where i would normally feel that mm-hmm, fader mm-hmm. and and yeah and there is a part of that that you need to have i think and i think uh, i think we've discovered the best of both worlds nice so you're a rock star in indiana and you're going to stay in indiana at some point john invests in this beautiful house land in brown county and it becomes belmont mall a recording studio where he's made so many uh songs that all of our listeners have heard uh i like a little bit of trivia about belmont mall because uh this band rem made life's rich pageant one of the great uh, rem albums they worked there because uh don gaiman right produced that album and don worked with uh john a lot the album that became cutting heads went through three different recording lives. The stuff they did in Florida, they scrapped. Uh, They worked some in New York, but eventually they came back to Brown County and made the official version of Belmont Mall. You know, I I, I got to be, um, not only record songs with John, but I actually recorded a song of my own uh, for that first record at Belmont. And it, it was a song that wasn't mine. And uh, so we were really kind of struggling with it. And um, David Leonard, who had done a lot of John's records as an engineer, uh, came in to do our, our song with us. And Wanchek actually happened to be there. And so uh, we all put our heads together. And, you know, John's right about magic there. I mean, it, 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 the song was an amazing version of the song because it originally was a ballad. And, um, and it, it was just unbelievable once we got done. I, I actually felt like a rock star while we were in there. You know, that's why all those painters were out there. You know, this, you know when I first built that studio out there, I thought, all oh, that's special bull****. But as time goes on, you know, <laughs> it's true. I mean, I've gone everywhere, but I always go back to Belmont if I want to get the record done. Belmont is is a real special place uh, because it's in the woods. Yep. It's off the side, off the road. Um, you know, it's never changed, which is interesting. That area of the of the world has never changed. Mm. Like you know, you go to different cities and you see the sprawl and you see this coming up and that. It's never changed there. It's always been the same. You walk in, Tim's there. Uh, Richard's <laughs> desk is either empty or there's something on it. But it's just there's something really special about that place. Yeah, I agree. One of the things that I'm always grateful for is I work for a newspaper where I have such access to a legitimate rock star. So I've been able to visit Belmont Mall on multiple occasions and kind of see how it works. I mean, nine out of ten big-time musicians live somewhere else, but but John chose to, to stick around. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. I spoke with John in December of 99 before that Conseco Fieldhouse, now Banker's Life Fieldhouse, New Year's Eve show. The next tape that I dug into for this episode was made in August of 2000. And it was uh, noteworthy because I called John the afternoon following his Good Samaritan show at Woodlawn Field on IU's campus in Bloomington. Um, the Good Samaritan tour was just a beautiful novelty that who, who else does this John Mellencamp just goes to a city pops up during a lunch break and uh, plays a show with uh, with kind of a stripped down band who else was uh, in that line it was John Mike 
a violin player, and I think he added somebody playing accordion at yeah, one point. The violinist was Merritt Lear. Okay. And the accordion player was Mike Flynn. I know Mike. Mike has a, that's a whole nother uh, story, maybe for a different uh, episode of Dave's old interview tapes. Absolutely. But, but Mike was a member of the great Indiana rock band, Old Pike, yep. which opened that New Year's Eve show at uh, the basketball arena. But backing up, uh, the Good Samaritan Tour, um, by the time it got to Bloomington, it was a lot more formal than it was other places. By the time it got to Bloomington, like it was announced in advance, and it was basically an outdoor concert in this field. In other cities, it was a real guerrilla pop-up phenomenon. And I could just tell what a charge John got out of that. The first one we did was great because we didn't even tell anybody. We had enough, you know, started out with 100 people. By the time we were done, there was 1,000 people there. I would have liked to have been there. Now, that, let me tell you something. The two most fun ones for me was Philadelphia and Cleveland. Cleveland was astonishing. Cleveland rocks. Well, what happened was is that they really didn't want us to do it. They were a little afraid of what was going to happen. And, I mean, I was, I was on a step. There was no stage. I was standing on some steps, and there were cops all around me, and people taking pictures, and there were cops in between me and Merritt. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it was just like the and we didn't have no PA system. You know, we, did, we hadn't anticipated this thing blowing up so big, so I was still singing out of battery-powered amps. And it was like, it was amazing. So rock and roll can still be dangerous. John and I had talked about Bob Dylan, and you know, because I, 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 unfortunately, it took going to IU to understand and really respect older music. That I was not really a Beatles fan. I mean, I listened to some. I, mean, I used to get made fun of terribly by John for some of the music I listened to. <laughs> and um, you know, so tell us more. Well, uh, if I if I brought up a Journey song, oh my gosh, it was it was over with John. And uh, and so I I refrained from telling him. So I I dug in. I dug in to the Beatles, Bob Dylan and stuff. And I think I think John was born a little late. You know, he hmm. would have loved to have been a part of that whole movement yeah. uh, at that time in the 60s. Uh, but he got to got to experience that. And what was really neat about that whole thing is I was still in college at the time and John for some reason had called me and asked me to come and, and listen to this what they were getting ready to go do. And at the time it was just uh, Mike and and Merritt and and John. The thing that I really appreciated about that is just to be able to sit there. And I, I think it was one of the first times I really just absorbed every single second of of the talent that came from that. Yeah. To be able to see it in that way and not have to be watching from the side of a stage or sitting in, in even the front or second row, but to see it right in front of you with no mics, no amps. Yeah. And I think that's probably what really charged him up was to be able to do that and have that connection with the, with the people that came to see mm -hmm. him play. All right. I loved what you were saying about maybe born a little late because uh, it's interesting how he's he's held up people like... Uh, Donovan and Mitch Ryder and the John Mellencamp band was legendary in the early 80s for knowing an encyclopedia of, of rock and roll songs from yes. the 60s and a few minutes ago you mentioned something that I should have followed up with right away when you were talking about a great rock and roll band to this day no band rehearses more is better prepared can hit something on a dime like the band that supports John Mellencamp and I see a lot of shows folks I go to a lot of concerts this band is unparalleled <laughs> absolutely unparalleled and every 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 incarnation of the band has been that good yeah. you know you, the 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 Kenny years the Grissom years the the now the 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 current lineup I mean I remember when we did a, a New Year's Eve show and I, I think it was at um oh what's that um that place has got the spires on it. It's this very small venue. Oh, oh Old National Center. Yes, yeah, Old Murrah. National Center it used to be it used to be called the Murat, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And so, um, and, and we did a New Year's Eve show. I got to be in the band for that. I was a percussionist and background vocals, and that was amazing. But I remember when we were rehearsing, it was just like, come on, can we do this one more time? I'm kidding, but it, but I understood that because we were that way too in in my band. I mean, we were very very hard workers, but nowhere near as hard as as, as John was yeah. and the band was. I mean, nobody worked harder than John. I know that sounds a little. Um, 
pompous, but I mean, you know, because Wanchik was the band leader, so sure. there was a lot of rehearsals where I would go in there and I'd just sing John's parts. Okay, so this New Year's Eve show that you just mentioned was, I believe, 98 going into 99. Correct. It was a twofer. They played the Marat Theater, a kind of a conventional show, and then a nightcap upstairs in the Egyptian room. Is that when you were playing? That's when I played, yeah. The only thing I remember from that set was Moe's cover of No Diggity. Yes. No doubt. Right. Exactly. And, of course, John, he offered me to sing a song, and, of course, I picked a Journey song, and that got shot right out of the air. So it was over. And and, and I was too embarrassed to ask for another song because I think I was going to do a verse of one of the, um, like a Rolling Stone. And, of course... I, I can't sing like Bob Dylan, and, and I and, and that got shot down, too. I mean, and at that time, there was nothing. I mean, that was right before I got sober. There was nothing that, mm-hmm. that I, I, I had no confidence by then. It was mm-hmm. over. So, mm-hmm. But it was just kind of funny because uh, I really enjoyed that. What I, I think I enjoyed the most about it was just the camaraderie and the intensity of the rehearsals and the intensity of getting out there and, and you know, sort of living a dream. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I was just Jimmy Reiser and, you know, who was in the shadow of Henry Lee Summer, who was in the shadow of John Mellencamp. So, yeah. and, and both Henry and I worshipped John. I mean, mm. we did. We both did. I mean, we talked about that. It's like, God, he really, not him the man, but just him the artist, him the person who. Yeah, creating a paradigm. Oh, my for, gosh. It was impressive. Yeah. And, you know, and I knew I was never that good, and I was okay with that. Um, one, thus the reason I changed careers, <laughs> but, but, but to be able to be a part of that and have enough, um, respect from John to be asked to do it was, was really humbling in a, in a really nice way. One of the cool things about Dave's old interview tapes is that things are trapped in Amber plans are made, but for whatever reason, things don't work out that way. John Mellencamp told me about an album title and album artwork that never came to fruition. Before Cutting Heads was Cutting Heads, it was going to be called something else. There's a, there's a title that's uh, been, uh, I've heard, kicked around for the record. Is that accurate? Kiss My Mule? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Do you have any cover art in mind? Or? It's already done. Yeah, what's, what is it? It's me on the beach uh, with a donkey. <laughs> and uh, um just walking, there's a picture of Picasso. You ever see that picture of Picasso where he's got the umbrella over his wife? And he's walking down the, down the beach. Okay. It's, it's the same thing, except I have the, the umbrella over a donkey. Jim, did you ever see that artwork? I never did, and I would kill to see it. So I'm going to have to make an appointment to zip down to Belmont and see <laughs> if I can't find it somewhere. I think that would be a really cool thing to be unearthed. Well, I, I can't imagine that he wouldn't have saved it, you know, because... As an artist, you save everything. Mm-hmm. What a great album title. <laughs> what a fabulous cover concept. Right, right. I, and was it shot in Florida? Yep. So I would imagine maybe it just sort of went the way of the Florida tapes, if you yep. will. Yep. And it just it just didn't fall into the good enough category. Everything is cool as can be the single from Cutting Heads is a great song called Peaceful World. Uh, featuring guest vocals by India Ari. That album also uh, featured a guest shot from Chuck D, the iconic Chuck D of Public Enemy. So thematically, a lot of that album uh, was about race in, in the United States, something that John has never shied away from addressing, trying to get people to snap out of some old ideas that <laughs> that are wrong. Uh, and and that's another thing to to always admire John about. I have to say that I remember when Cherry Bomb came out, and there was a lot of controversy because I was working within the organization at that particular point. I appreciate that more now in the field that I'm in than I ever have. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think the thing that I appreciate the most about what John did is he made everybody take a look at themselves. Yep. And what a way to do it! You've touched a little bit uh, in this episode about. The perception of John Mellencamp, you know, he's prickly, do it his way. One of the things that he's underscored to me in interviews is he writes songs the way he wishes he were. He's aspiring to something and not necessarily. I guess what I'm saying is not only making us look at uh, 
ourselves and how we live life. He's he's a person who looks at his own life. Yes, absolutely. I think that was one of the things that I really came to understand about him after I got sober. Because well, before I got sober, my my whole life was me, 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 mm-hmm. I, 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 <laughs> and it and that's what addiction is, unfortunately. And um, getting sober makes you stop doing that, makes you really look around. And I think that's the, again, that's why when I look back at some of that, you know, the African American male and the white woman dancing together, yep. and it's like. You know that really affected people in a negative way, and at at the time, and of course today, it's we we wouldn't look twice at that. That would right. not be controversial at all. Right. And I think that's what's amazing is is how forward looking John was with that. So looping back uh, to the title, Cutting Heads, John named the album Cutting Heads. It's a reference used by uh, jazz musicians, R and B, soul musicians back in the day, kind of like uh, not a rap battle, but you play this guitar lick, I'm going to play a better one, and we call that Cutting Heads. Cutting Heads. Yeah. One of kind of the side benefits of covering John Mellencamp, being at the Indianapolis Star, is that I occasionally would uh, rub against the universe of these big names in the music industry, one being uh, the late uh, Timothy White, uh-huh. editor of Billboard, who was very close with John. John also is friends with John Sykes, uh, co-founder of MTV and VH1. And one of the VH1 initiatives in the late 90s was uh, a great program called Save the Music, promoting music education in schools. In 1999, John was part of a Save the Music event at the White House. This was the Clinton White House. Just a cavalcade of stars, Robert De Niro. I remember uh, like the kid in sync version. Everybody was Oh, there. wow. Yeah. So tons of actors and musicians? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And John... John told me a very amusing story about walking on stage that day. And on Dave's old interview tapes, um, well, we'll probably set a record for this episode. I, I did a lot of bleeps uh, in our Slash episode. <laughs> uh, but John Mellencamp, you ever sit down with John Mellencamp? He can let the language fly. Yes. On his uh, famous Dove guitar uh, for many years, he has a self uh, drawn slogan on it that we'll just say is F fascism. Now there I am standing on stage with fascism on my guitar. Teenagers behind me, which never dawned on me. You know, that there was a bunch of, you know, 14, 15 year old kids. You know, I look down and it's been, you know, it's been on my guitar since early 70s. And, you know, when you see something every day, it just becomes, you know, so what? And I didn't even think about it, but I'm walking out on stage and I look down and it's like, oh, f- this person has stage. Oh, f- this f- on my guitar. And he's going to be two feet in front of him. There's his wife. And oh, f- there's those kids back there. You know, it all just kind of came crashing down. And you know, it's interesting because he can shut that language off in a heartbeat when there's kids around. <laughs> But it was interesting because my wife told me one time, she says, you've been hanging out with John again, haven't oh, no. you? Oh, yes. Because it's immediate. I mean, it's just like every other word. And it, it, because it's easy, to, it's easy to fall into John language. Okay. <laughs> right? I can see how he would have gotten rattled at that particular point. Um, but it's sort of surprising because there's the other part of him that just wouldn't care. Right. You know what? I'm going to back up because... There's another side of John that he has talked about at some some points of a social anxiety or a, or a public performance anxiety oh, yes. that you would never think would affect someone who's made a life performing in front of people. I, I can understand where that comes from in in the in the career that I'm in now in in mental health, and um, you know stage fright is very common among some people. Carly Simon had horrific stage fright. And um, John and I have talked about that anxiety from time to time. And of course, you know, uh, I had horrible stage fright, and it went away with one big bang when I sang, sang at Farm Aid. Yeah, that that was the end of stage fright for me. <laughs> but what's interesting about John, I think, part of his anxiety is probably just fueled from from his expectations of himself, right? You know, because that's. That's how he drives himself. That's how he, you know, and I'm not psychoanalyzing John for crying out loud, but I'm just saying that's how, that's part of what makes him him. Hmm. That's part of what drives him to be the better guy. And, And anxiety is, I can't imagine 
why he would ever have it. I, mm. I, I scratched my head when we talked about it. And it wasn't anything. It was just more in passing sure, sure. Than, than anything. But I just remember him saying, I, you know, I used to be really anxious about something. You? Yeah. Are you kidding me? You're, there's no reason for that. But, but I understand that because we all have our little quirks about us. And, and uh, so I can see where that would, would get to him. Jib, I need to go back to the top of the episode and do your introduction again as performer at 1990 Farm Aid at the old Hoosier RCA Dome, sharing a stage with Guns N' Roses, Lou Reed. Elton John. Elton John. <laughs> what a day that was. John Mellencamp. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that day. Oh my gosh, that was such an incredible day because that was when uh, the record was coming out and... Um, you know, uh, we had like all the vice presidents from Arista were there and it was just a it was a real idealistic moment for me. It was it was a, it was that meeting of the dream. Mm. And, you know, I used to get horrific, horrific. I mean, talk about anxiety. I would have such pain in my abdomen from just singing in a local bar that I had been hospitalized from it. Okay. And it was anxiety. Um, I, I learned later. Um, but I would. So. And I was afraid of that happening there, you know, yeah, yeah. and the Hammerheads uh, played just in front of us. And I remember watching Greg Forsman walk off that stage going, what a rush. And I'm like, I'm scared to death. Now, what's interesting. Well, first of all, being there and seeing Elton John and shaking his hand and seeing Axl Rose sitting kind of by himself backstage uh -huh. and shaking his hand. And, you know, I had the little farm aid artist backstage pass. And, right. you know, so everybody knew I was an artist, too. So there was no none of that. None of the get away from me stuff. It was actually a very pleasant interaction with everybody I met that day. Nice. And 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 of course, just just being a being a part of that was so amazing. So amazing. Yeah. But it was interesting because um, I have a copy of our performance of the of same old look um, from that day. Um, my drummer who played with me during that time passed away um, last year, and okay. um, so John was gracious enough to hook me up with the Farm Aid people, and they hooked me up with a video of that. Oh, that's great! And uh, I I won't watch it. I won't mm. watch it. And I, and I think I probably never will. And it's not because uh, I, I miss Greg, because I do miss Greg. But I think I'd like to leave that time period here in my brain, in my heart, and not ever see it. Because I'm sure it was not very well performed on my part. <laughs> well, that's a that's a big old room. Uh, doesn't exist anymore. Nope. Uh, this show in 1999, this New Year's Eve show, was at the brand new Conseco Fieldhouse, now Banker's Life Fieldhouse. And the first act to play that room was Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Big show. A lot of the public feedback after that show was, that sound was not good. That sounded like garbage. And for better or worse, to this day, uh, that room is kind of a tricky acoustic spot to perform. I always say, the way to beat that room is to play under it. Like the best 45 minutes of music I've ever heard in that arena was when Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young played an acoustic set. They, that tour, they did an acoustic set and a plugged in set, but just the four of them with their guitars and their voices. Oh, but it was amazing. It was amazing. And as a consumer guide, it's sometimes frustrating to me uh, when people say, well, that, that Fieldhouse has kind of a bad reputation for acoustics. And the best I can tell people is it's a case-by-case -case situation. If an artist and their crew are attentive and do the right things, it can sound just fine. And I really appreciated uh, in this interview leading up to John's performance there, uh, he kind of gave me a little master class on live Acoustics. Having a PA system in a building is, is like having a stereo in your car. Okay. You know, if you have a stereo in your car and you roll down the windows and you drive fast, you can't hear the stereo. Right. It's, it's just a math problem. Uh -huh. Volume versus sound, you know. Uh, so in your car, then all of a sudden, if you get like, you know, bigger speakers and a, and a booster and uh, add a couple speakers up front, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Then all of a sudden, you can drive that same speed and with the windows down and, hey, I can hear my stereo. It's the same thing in those buildings. I haven't seen the building, but apparently it's very high and 
actually above the PA system. Right. And if you don't have enough boxes in your trucks, yeah, then you, you know you're kind of screwed. One thing that uh, that always impressed me about John is he would always go out in the front of the hall wherever hmm. he was, and listen, and tell the engineer what he wanted to hear. And he had, in my opinion, some of the best engineers, sound, uh, mixing engineers right. in, in the business. I mean, he never. He, but but he always wanted to make sure it sounded like he wanted it to sound, and and he was spot on every single time. So I would imagine, if anything, John would have probably either been aware of it, and if he found out that it was anything but really, really good, it would change the next time he came through. Well, it's interesting. Basically, the first three heavy hitters to play Conseco, uh, now Banker's Life Fieldhouse, were Springsteen, Billy Joel, and John Mellencamp. And it's interesting how much of a shared community of uh, techs and support staff uh, those three artists uh, had. And Absolutely. Had. Yep, yeah. yep. It's kind of yep. like uh, you're in the major leagues now. Yeah, well, and the late Harry Sandler was one of the best oh, yeah. tour uh, managers in the business, and he did a lot of work with all those people. Yeah, yeah. Loved every moment I ever spent with Harry. Uh, I actually uh, profiled him as a photographer. Yes, and he's a really good photographer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. when he was on Twitter, I'd banner back and forth with him all the time. And Harry never lost his his. He he was a very super sweet, nice man. He got me the only time I've ever seen a concert at uh, Banker's Life. The only time I ever saw a concert there was Fleetwood Mac, and he got me those tickets. John Mellencamp has adopted a mantra in in recent years. And he uh, credits Pete Seeger uh, for for passing it on to him. And it's he doesn't say it the exact same way every time, but essentially it's keep it small and keep it moving. In the last decade, John has said that in almost every interview that you'll come across. And it's, it says a lot about, again, that artistic life. And he also another thing that John says these days is that an album for him, he calls it a calling card. He's not expecting it to hit the top of the charts. Nobody does anymore these days. <laughs> if you look at the Billboard sales numbers, what could be the top of the chart, your record would have debuted at number one today. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't pay any attention to it anymore. It takes about 25,000 sales to reach number one for a week. Wow. Unreal. Yeah, my record would have been... <laughs> Anyway, John has adapted. He's very gracefully uh, become a rock and roll musician in the 21st century, and he uh, he learned from some of the best. Making, making records now is just you know a part of what I do. It's just part of my job, uh, and I think I really learned that from watching Willie and Johnny Cash and these other guys. They all just you know they they make records, but that's not really what they do anymore. Yeah, you know, because uh, teen music is is so you know far away from what I do. Huh. So you know, I, I don't even want to you know. I don't know. I don't think that I don't, I don't think I should be part of that. You know, I don't think I should concern myself with things like MTV and you know things like that anymore. I think the thing that impresses me the most about John. And not just because he had these other fellows before him, but he's become an elder statesman mm -hmm. in, for music and for art and for whatever he chooses to do. I mean, obviously, the music and the painting are his two top things, and he will sing until there's no air left in his lungs. hes I've heard him say that. I remember telling him, I was like, I'm so glad I'm not playing in the bars anymore. I just I couldn't do it. I, I could barely breathe. And he's like, I will sing as long as there's air in my lungs. Mm. The thing that I like about John is his voice never gets bad i mean i think it gets better with age that's just that's my... what he thinks too yeah it's 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 become a different animal it really has i mean yeah. it's quite smoky for lack of a better way of saying <laughs> it to this day he's more impressed that i quit smoking than drugs but uh, that's another story but the reality for for that is is he's an elder statesman he has nothing to prove and he you know what he never has had anything to prove mm. and i think that's the thing that really sets him apart from everybody else including myself Life is short, even in its longest days. Jim, this has been a blast. I can't believe that we have such an insider. Of all the episodes of Dave's old interview tapes, we've had some fantastic in-studio guests, but uh, you really rise above. 
as someone who really knows the person that we're talking about. It's kind of interesting, too, because I think about our friendship over the years and how it's evolved. And, um, you know, I've always just been kind of here and a little slice here and a little slice here. And when you first asked me, I thought Wanchek would be a much better person to, to talk about. But I think in looking at what we got to talk about today and really seeing it from the angles that we saw it from, I think Wanchek would have a completely different story, which is fine. Right. That's what's fun about it. But um, to be able to look back and say, you know what? I'm grateful for that friendship. I'm grateful for the part he's played in my life in so many different ways. Yeah. It's nice to be able to do something uh, a little bit uh, of an homage right back to him. Nice, nice. Well, thank you for doing it. And stay tuned, Dave's Old Interview Tapes fans. There may be another Mellencamp episode at some point. I also have tape with uh, the band members. I'd like to do an episode with tape I have from uh, Toby Myers, Kenny Aronoff, and Mike Wanchek himself. So stay tuned. Listeners, thanks as always for uh, hanging out. If you're at a podcast streaming site or device, and if you can share a rating or subscribe, that's always appreciated. We'll be back with another episode of Dave's Old Adventure.